Hello, it's Mark from Casting Through Ancient Greece here. Before we start today's episode, I just want to give a quick podcast recommendation. So I'll hand it over to Colm from Pieces of History to tell you more. Hello, my name's Colm and I'm the host of Pieces of History, a podcast that delves into some renowned and lesser known events throughout history. Join me as I look at topics such as the Black Death, the Rise of Dubai, the Indrangheta, Italy Star Mafia, New Amsterdam, the Czech Secret Service during the Cold War, the STB, plus many more. Season 1 has 10 episodes with 2 bonus shows, so there's plenty to get your teeth into. Pieces of History is on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Pieces of History Pod. Master, remember the Athenians. Master, remember the Athenians. Master, remember the Athenians. The words uttered to King Darius by one of his servants as reported by Herodotus. Hello, I'm Mark Selick and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece. Episode 15, The Ionian Revolt. We've now finished looking at the development of the three main players in Greek affairs heading into the Greek and Persian Wars the Spartans, Athenians, and Persians. They are our main players as the information in the sources that comes down to us mainly deals with these three heading into this period. Though we will hear of other city-states that will have an impact on events and we will deal with them as they become more prevalent in the accounts. Perhaps even devoting episodes to the developments of such city-states as Corinth, Thebes, and so on. We have now reached the closing stages of the 6th century BC, and the opening stages of what will become the Greek and Persian Wars. We'll now start to get back on track with a narrative of the period and the interactions of the Greek world with the Persians. The Greeks and Persians were in closer contact than ever before, both through diplomatic contacts and physical geography. Tensions would arise amongst the Ionian Greek cities who had found themselves under Persian rule that would lead them to revolt and provide the Persian Empire with an excuse to campaign west. The Ionian Revolt has been often presented as a reason for the opening of the Greek and Persian Wars, though it is probably helpful to think of it as a convenient excuse to going to war, much like the assassination of the Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand before World War I. There were already decades of tensions and conflicting interests present. The path to conflict in hindsight seemed inevitable. All that was needed was a spark in the right place. We need to remember that the Persians had dealt with numerous revolts throughout their empire previously. The Ionian Revolt doesn't seem to have been as threatening as others the empire had faced, as it didn't warrant the direct intervention from the king himself. Though from the Greeks' point of view, this was a great event, as in their eyes it would lead to one of the greatest threats the Greeks had yet faced. In this episode we are going to focus on the events that would lead up to the decision of the Ionian cities breaking out in revolt the help that they sought from the Greek mainland, and what help they received. Then we will see how the revolt transpired, and then the inevitable counter-campaign by the Persians to squash the uprising. This will then culminate in the Battle of Lade, and we will then end with the consequences of the revolt. For most of the events around the Ionian Revolt, we will be following for the most part Herodotus' narrative, as he is the most complete account, well from the Greek perspective anyway. 
The Ionian Greeks who had crossed the Aegean from their mother cities centuries ago and established colonies along the Anatolian coastline were now part of the Persian Empire. These Greeks had previously been under the Lydian Empire, but only in its final years. Now they were paying tribute and answerable to the Persians. The idea of freedom to the Greeks was a concept not known in most parts of the Persian Empire, and the Greeks greatly resented it when their freedoms were curtailed in any way. The Greek city-states in Ionia were governed by tyrannies. These tyrants managed to get their positions through the backing of the king, and in return, they would run their cities in the interests of the empire. The city-state that would take a leading role in the revolt, and Herodotus' narrative, was that of Miletus. Miletus drew a connection back to Athens, which rests in stories from the mythic past, and it was considered the wealthiest of the Ionian cities. The tyrant of Miletus was a man named Aristagoras, who was acting in place of his father-in-law, Histiaeus, who was being detained in Susa. Histiaeus had been flagged as someone with a little too much ambition, so he had been rewarded with a position in Susa, where he would be under watchful eyes. And as so often in the accounts of history, the reasons for great events would rest with a couple of men, though the broader view of the Ionian situation would be the major driving factor. In 500 BC, a group of aristocrats found themselves in the unfortunate position of becoming refugees. They had come ashore on the Ionian coastline and into Miletus after fleeing their home island of Naxos, part of the Cyclades island group. Class tensions also existed here, and the aristocrats who had enjoyed power were overthrown by the people, seizing control of the island. The refugees had a guest host friendship with Histiaeus, but in his absence sought counsel with Aristagoras and requested help in re-establishing their position back on Naxos. Aristagoras saw a great opportunity in the request. He assumed that he would be made ruler of Naxos in return for his aid. He also could present the enterprise to the Persian Empire as extending their influence into the Aegean. Aristagoras informed the exiles from Naxos that he would gain more troops from the Persian governor, Artaphernes, if they would provide funds to help raise the forces. Aristagoras travelled to Sardis, the city that administered the region of Ionia, and where the satrap Artaphernes governed from. He presented his proposal of his expedition to add Naxos to the empire, citing that it was a rich and fertile island which exerted much influence, and the exiles were prepared to pay for the forces required. He added that if Naxos came under Persian rule, then surrounding islands would surely follow suit. Artaphernes was impressed with the proposal, enthusiastically so, to where he suggested providing more ships and men than what Aristagoras had originally sought. All that was left was now to gain the king's approval, so a messenger was sent to Susa to present the plan of the expedition before Darius. Aristagoras returned to Miletus, where he could pass on the good news to the exiles. Sometime later, Aristagoras would receive word that the great king had approved the plans and forces were being assembled, ready for the upcoming campaigning season. It is interesting to note that armies in ancient times didn't tend to campaign in the closing autumn months or in winter, as the weather and conditions made it very difficult to keep an army supplied, and the amount of supplies needed were greatly increased in these periods. Not to mention the strain on the army and the navies themselves, and the risks they face were greatly increased, and that was even before encountering the enemy. Anyway, once the weather was suitable for campaigning in 499 BC, Megabates, the cousin of the king Darius, arrived with an army and a fleet off Miletus. Aristagoras then accompanied the forces composed of both Persian and local troops and set sail for Naxos. 
Upon the fleet's arrival at Naxos, it appears that the island had been tipped off, as they were prepared and able to withstand a siege. As Herodotus tells the story, he suggests the Persian commander himself had tipped the island off while at sea, as Aristagoras had tried to undermine his command. It isn't difficult to see disagreements developing between the two, as perhaps like his father-in-law, Aristagoras was suspected by Megabates of harbouring other motivations and ambitions not aligned with the Persian interests. Though it seems very unlikely that Megabates would sabotage a campaign that was in Persia's interest. It seems more plausible that word of preparations for an attack at Naxos made its way back to the island through less extravagant means. The siege of the island then took place, which bogged down for four months, at which time the money to keep the forces paid and supplied started to run out. Persian commanders wanted to return back to the empire and not continue putting money into what they saw as a stalemate. Aristagoras was now in a difficult position as he was unable to deliver on his end of the deal, that being the taking of Naxos. The expedition had dragged on and a lot of money was also still owed. Aristagoras felt that his position in Miletus was in danger of being taken from him due to the failure and tensions with Megabates, the cousin of the king. All of these issues compounded were making Aristagoras think of a rebellion against Persian rule. We are then told that a message arrived from Miletus, sent by Histiaeus, all the way from Susa, telling Aristagoras to rebel also. His motivations seemed to be his distress at being detained in Susa, believing he would be sent back to Miletus if trouble broke out there. The message had to travel along the royal road that we spoke of during the last episode, so a message of rebellion would have been extremely risky to send on the king's own road. Histiaeus, though, devised a way to prevent the message from being discovered. He had shaved the head of one of his slaves and tattooed the message on his head. He then waited for the hair to grow back before sending him on his way to Miletus. Once the slave reached Miletus, he had only been given the instruction to tell Aristagoras to shave his head, where he would then find Histiaeus's message of rebellion. One would think that a message of rebellion tattooed to a man's head in the royal capital of Susa would also be of great risk of being discovered while the man was waiting for his hair to grow back. As we can see, Herodotus is laying the reasons for the breakout of the rebellion with just two men and their selfish ambitions. It is likely that they probably had self-interest in leading the rebellion, but they were not acting in a vacuum. The people of Ionia were subjected to rising taxes. It seems their ability to trade outside the empire was being restricted, and also that notion of their lack of freedom was still there. For men to lead a rebellion, the conditions needed to exist for one to be led. The majority of the people of Miletus also supported rebellion against Persian rule. So now that Aristagoras' favour with the Persians was seemingly coming to an end, it would have been in his best interest to take up the cause to keep influence within his city and stay out of Persian chains. He dropped the tyranny in Miletus in favour of democracy and then set about ousting the tyrants of the other Ionian cities and installing democracies to further support the rebellion and himself. Now that the Ionian cities were free of their tyrannies, they were able to come together under their common cause, though they would still need more assistance if they were going to resist the resources of the Persian Empire. So Aristagoras sent off for the Greek mainland. His first port of call was to the city-state of Sparta, who anyone getting ready for a fight would want on their side. As we saw from our episode on Sparta's rise during the Archaic period, they had been recognised as the leading power within the Greek mainland, both domestically and internationally. Aristagoras met with the Spartan king Cleomenes 
and attempted to persuade the king in gaining Spartan support in the rebellion. First he tried to appeal to the common Greek link that they shared, and how his fellow Greeks across the Aegean were not free, answering to a master. Aristagoras had also brought with him a bronze map. This was probably a map reproduced from one created by Hecateus of Miletus, who in turn improved on a map produced by Anaximander of Miletus. Hecateus was an early Greek historian and geographer, born in the mid-6th century, that seems to have influenced Herodotus, though none of his works survive today. Anaximander was a philosopher living in the 6th century. Many of the Ionian cities were seen as centres of learning during the 6th century, where their ideas and teachings would make their way to the Greek mainland, where they would be developed further. Aristagoras was able to show Cleomenes all the regions under Persian rule and the wealth of each region, enticing him with the possible plunder. Aristagoras then ends his tour of riches with the ultimate prize of Susa, the Persian capital where the Spartans would be richer than Zeus. He also appeals to the Spartan ego as he names them as the greatest of the Greek warriors and explains the Persian weakness, for they fight with bows and short spears, and if that wasn't enough to show how easy an opponent they would be, they also fought in trousers, truly barbaric. After Aristagoras presents his case to Cleomenes, he is told to wait for two days for an answer. After the two days, Cleomenes has a question for Aristagoras. How far was Susa from the Ionian coast? To this he answered, three months march. To this answer, all hope of help from the Spartans disappeared. No Spartan was going to march three months away from home, considering how Spartan society was set up. Who would be there to ensure the helots didn't rise up? Cleomenes may have also had the failed Samian campaign of 525 in mind which took place some five years before he was king, and was not nearly as far east as the expedition of Susa. Aristagoras was now given till sunset to leave town. Herodotus then tells us that Aristagoras didn't give up there. He followed Cleomenes home, now offering money to accept his request, and continually increasing the offer with each refusal. Cleomenes' daughter, Gorgo, who would become the future wife of the famous King Leonidas, was also present and said, Father, you had better go away, or the stranger will corrupt you. This is where all talks ceased, and all Aristagoras could do was leave Sparta, though there was another polis that might still be able to help the cause. Aristagoras then travelled on to what he believed the next most powerful city in Greece, Athens. Here, instead of putting his plea for help to one man, he found himself trying to convince the Athenian citizenry. He follows much the same line of argument when talking to the Athenians, outlining the riches and the weakness of the Persians in warfare. He also uses the supposed common ethnic ties of the Ionians and the Athenians, as the Ionians were meant to be the descendants of the Athenian settlers. Being desperate for help, he started making any promises that he could think of to attempt to win over the Athenians. After Aristagoras's arguments are heard by the people, they agree to support the Ionians in their revolt and arrange for a fleet of 20 ships. Herodotus then says, perhaps taking a shot at democracy, Apparently it is easier to impose upon a crowd than upon an individual. For Aristagoras, who failed to impose upon Cleomenes, succeeded with 30,000 Athenians. The polis of Eritrea on Euboea, just off the Attic coast, also provided a small fleet to join the Athenian force in support of the Ionian revolt. Their honour saw that they needed to repay the support given to them by Miletus during the Lalatine War, even if it was nearly 200 years ago, which we covered earlier in the series. 
One spring day in 498 BC, a fleet of 20 Athenian and 5 Eretrian triremes put ashore on the Ionian coast of Asia Minor, just outside the city of Ephesus. There they were to add to their numbers an Ionian force with the aim of marching deep into Persian territory to the capital, Susa. The Ionian and the Allied force marched following the course of the Castor River all the way into the Timolus Mountains, where after crossing the ridge, they came onto the old Lydian capital of Sardis. This was the first main city in the Persian Empire that the force had to enter, which they did without any opposition, until they reached the fortified centre of the city. One look at the Acropolis of Sardis today would show how much of an imposing obstacle this would have been. I have placed an image of the ancient site onto the episode's page for you to have a look at. Strong Persian forces occupied the Acropolis in the city centre and were commanded by Artaphernes, who Aristagoras had originally conferred with on the Naxus scheme. During the confusion of assembling the Ionians and the Allies in the face of the resistance from the Persians, a fire broke out within the city that quickly spread, engulfing many houses. The flames created even more confusion and the alarm was raised to the Persians in the surrounding areas, who started to march onto the trouble in Sardis. Meanwhile, the Persians in the city poured out into the marketplace and took defensive stance in the face of the Greek force. A wall of flames separated the two forces, but the Greeks seeing the Persians ready to fight and coupled with the knowledge of another large force on its way, they decided to pull out of the city back to the Tomolus Mountains. At dusk, the Ionians and their allies decided not to continue the expedition and started to make their way back to Ephesus on the coast. As the Persians started to grasp hold of the situation in Sardis, they realised the Ionians had made their way out of the city. Artaphernes, not wanting the rebels to escape, put together a force to track down the invaders and stop their retreat. As the flames and dust settled, it was also discovered that a temple devoted to a goddess that the local population worshipped laid in ruins. The scratch force Artaphernes sent out caught up and shadowed the Greeks as they retreated back to the coast. Just as they reached the outskirts of Ephesus, they turned to meet the Persians as they now had arrived in force. During the battle, the weary Ionians were overcome by the highly mobile force of the Persians, with the survivors routed from the battlefield. It has been suggested that the Persian force would have been mostly made up of cavalry units for them to have caught up with the Greeks. The cavalry that the Persians fielded would most likely have been missile-armed troops that could harass the Greeks. A decisive cavalry charge would have been almost impossible for the Persians to direct against the heavily armed hoplites. With the Persian cavalry not in a position to force a decisive battlefield victory, the Greek survivors would have been able to retreat in relatively good order back to their respective cities. The Ionians who survived the battle returned to their cities while the Athenians and Eritreans made their way back to where the ships had been landed and sailed back for Greece. Here we have an account of one particular action during the revolt, though in reality revolt had spread all through Ionia and into neighbouring regions as far north as the Hellespont and south into Caria. As the rebellion spread, Darius became aware of the growing threat in the west of his empire and devoted more forces to putting an end to the uprising. Even the island of Cyprus off the coast of modern-day Syria and Lebanon had risen up in revolt, except for one city which the rebels laid siege to. During the siege, word had made it to the rebels that a large Persian force was on its way to the island. The Cyprian rebels sent out messages for help to the Ionians to help defend against the Persian force. The Ionians had gathered and came over to Cyprus in large numbers, not long before the Persians landed on the island. A meeting of the rebels took place. The Cyprians asked if the Ionians wanted to fight on land or at sea, for the Persians had also brought a fleet that was manned by the Phoenicians. 
The Ionians decided to stay with their fleet and attack at sea while the Cyprians faced the Persians on land. Once the Persians had landed on Cyprus, the Cyprians went out and met them in battle, where they were defeated due to treachery from one of the Cyprian tyrants. This seems to be a common and preferred tactic the Persians sought to defeat their enemies, saving the potential casualties they would suffer otherwise. After this defeat, the Persians laid siege to the cities on the island. The Ionians had got the better of the Phoenicians at sea, but seeing the Cyprian corps lost on land, they sailed back home to Ionia. After four months, the last besieged city on Cyprus had fallen, ending the year-long freedom that the Cyprians had enjoyed. The Persians' counter-offensive to subdue the rebellions now started to gain momentum, as more armies had arrived in the west. Another Persian army that was in the process of resubjugating cities around the Hellespont was now redirected to make for the region of Caria. The Carians had heard of the advance of the Persians, and debate had broken out how best to meet them. The river Meander ran into Caria, and it was proposed that the Carians fight with the river at their backs to hold the troops in place and stop them from fleeing. But in the end, they allowed the Persians to cross the river so that this would have the river at their backs. The battle went badly for the Carians. Herodotus tells us that the Persians lost some 2,000 men, while the Carians lost five times as many. The Carians now deliberated on their best course of action. Should they surrender or look to settle in a new region? In the meantime, a contingent of Milesians and their allies arrived to support the Carians. Their arrival had convinced them to continue their resistance instead. A second battle was fought, but the result was even worse. Though no figures are given, the newcomers had taken the brunt of the casualties. The Carians, now substantially weakened, had to resort to unconventional tactics and laid ambushes on the Persians travelling on the road. At this stage, though, most of the cities in Caria had been laid siege to. The armies of the Persian Empire had now brought the Hellespont, Cyprus and much of Caria back under control, while many of the Ionian cities were also being subdued. Aristagoras, seeing the towns of Ionia falling to the Persians one by one, had now decided to consider his best course of action. He decided with his supporters that they would relocate into Thrace, where they could found a new city and Aristagoras could remain leader of his people away from Persian control. Aristagoras and his men abandoned Miletus and made their way into Thracian territory. This would be the end of Aristagoras, as in his attempt to settle in Thrace with his men, they were all killed by the Thracians, whose territory they were encroaching on. Miletus, though, had still not been subdued by the Persians. Histiaeus had been stuck in Susa, convincing Darius to let him return to Miletus to help bring things under control. Darius' suspicion of his involvement had been increasing, though Histiaeus had managed to convince Darius of his loyalty. He had assured Darius that the people of Miletus and Aristagoras would not be working against Persian interests, though if this were the case, he would get to the bottom of where and who the blame lay with. To further prove his loyalty, he suggested he would not rest until he could get the island of Sardinia to pay tribute to the Persian Empire. On his travels back to Ionia, Histiaeus stopped off in Sardis, where he was confronted by Artaphernes, who believed he was the architect of the revolt. Or as Herodotus puts it, you, Histiaeus, made the shoe and Aristagoras put it on. Histiaeus denied all the accusations and slipped out of Sardis as soon as he could. Once he had arrived back in Ionia, he had to convince his own countrymen that he was not acting in the Persian interests, but quite the opposite. Around this time, his true intentions had been discovered, as he had been communicating with men in Sardis about the revolt, through some misdelivered letters that had made it to Artaphernes' hands. 
Artaphernes learnt what he could from Histiaeus's Persian contacts before severing his links to them. Histiaeus's connection to the revolt now started to fade as the Milesians had become used to both his and Aristagoras's absence, and new power dynamics would have started to form. The people were unconvinced of his loyalty and used force to prevent his entry into the city. Histiaeus's belief in the cause had not disappeared, so he had travelled up the coast towards Byzantium, trying to recruit others where we are told he also took to privateering. Now the two leaders of the rebellion were out of the picture, but the Ionians still had to contend with the Persian forces. They now learnt of another large push by the Persians, and this time to be directed at Miletus, the seat of the revolt. The Ionians met and decided to face the Persians at sea, and not arrange resistance on land, as the engagements at sea had some success in the past. The Ionians concentrated all of their available ships off the coast of Miletus, near a small island called Lade, where they would command their fleet from. The Persians, when arriving with their fleet, were surprised at the size of the fleet that the Ionians were able to arrange against them. They first turned to diplomacy and had the tyrants who were exiled at the beginning of the revolt appeal to their respective Ionian cities, attempting to convince their fellow Greeks that they were fighting a losing cause, but to no avail. The Ionians were confident they had assembled 353 ships, though they needed leadership and guidance, so that the crews could act as a coherent force. A man named Dionysius emerged and put forward his proposal of preparation. The Ionians agreed to his plan and elected him to lead the forces, even though Phokia, the city he had come from, had provided the smallest contingent. The Ionians worked hard in the hot sun day in and day out for a week, until the objections to Dionysius' training regime grew louder and louder. The Ionians now refused to continue, and discipline in the camp now seemed to erode away. As a result, the proposals from the tyrants working with the Persians now seemed to have been given a second thought by some of the commanders in the Ionian fleet, particularly that of the Samnians. Seeing the cohesion of the Ionians starting to break down, the Samnians could not see how they would be able to prevail over the Persian fleet. By Persian, I mean the fleet fighting on behalf of Persia, as the ships that made up the fleet were mostly Phoenician and Egyptian, with some other regions Persia controlled also participating. If the Samians betrayed the Ionian cause, their island would escape the inevitable destruction that the Persians would inflict on all those who dared to fight them during the revolt. They ended up agreeing that at the first chance of abandoning the battle, they would. This information would have made its way back to the Persian camp, who were now confident in victory after once again finding elements of the enemy who were willing to turn traitor. Ready or not for the Ionians, the Persian fleet came on at them with 600 ships, and soon the fleets were in close quarters with one another. From there things started to go badly for the Ionians. It was now that the Samians abandoned the battle and sailed for home. They had made up the left flank of the Greek position with 60 ships. We hear that 11 of the Samian ships remained as their commanders had argued against leaving the battle. Though with the Greek left flank having gone, the contingent of 70 ships from Lesbos saw that they were now at risk of being outflanked, and morale was lost at the sight of their neighbours quitting the line of battle. They now followed suit, melting away from the battle. The Greek fleet had now lost its entire left flank and over 100 triremes. This now had a ripple effect down the line, with many more of the Ionian ships fleeing the battle. Though a number did stay and continue the battle. Great successes were had by individual contingents, namely that of the hundred strong Chians, but in the end the Persian numbers won out. What remained of the Ionian fleet after the battle fled back to their home islands, or to the Ionian coast, where the ships were abandoned. 
This had been one of the strongest Greek forces assembled to date, but the backroom dealings had seen the fleet disintegrate at first contact with the enemy. Herodotus also gives us the fate of Dionysius, who had advocated hard work and discipline in the lead-up to the battle, but that the Ionians refused to see through to the end. Even though he had only provided a contingent of three ships, he had managed to capture three enemy ships, but ended up fleeing the battle after seeing the rout take place. He didn't return to his home island of Phokia, as he knew his fate if he had returned. He ended up sailing to Sicily, where he became a pirate, but would leave Greek shipping alone and prey on all others. With the Ionians now defeated at sea, the Persians turned to reducing Miletus, killing most of the men and sending the women and children into slavery. Resistance that had been holding out in the other areas now died off as well, with the news of the defeat. The Persians had to continue mopping up operations after the winter of 494 BC had passed, though effectively the revolt was over and the Persians had brought the Ionians back into the fold. The fate of Histiaeus is also revealed by Herodotus. After sailing off in search for a new body of men to lead in the rebellion, Histiaeus returned back to the Ionian coast with a fleet after hearing of the fall of Miletus. Perhaps he thought he could breathe new life back into the rebellion with the arrival of his newly recruited men and be reinstalled as their leader once again. Though, upon coming ashore one day, he was captured by the Persians. He thought his fate would not be all that bad, as he believed Darius would pardon him. Instead, he was brought before Artaphernes, who was well aware of his involvement, and had Histiaeus impaled, a punishment inflicted on rebel leaders. He then had his head cut off and sent back to Darius in Susa. The year was now 494 BC, and the Ionian revolt had failed to set the Ionian Greeks free. Instead, they had suffered harsh punishments for daring to rebel against King Darius. Many of the men had been killed, and the women and children had been sold into slavery, while other portions of the population had been relocated east into the empire, far away from their homelands. Ionia was back firmly in Persian control, but Darius wasn't satisfied. There was still unfinished business. Men from outside the empire had come in and aided the rebels. They had burnt to the ground a sacred temple in Sardis. Worst of all, supposedly they had given the great king tokens of their submission, earth and water, a couple of decades earlier when seeking aid against Spartan aggression. Yet they had dared marched against him. In Darius's eyes, they had also rebelled against him. The story goes, after learning about the Athenians' involvement in the fire at Sardis, and after being reminded of who they were, he took a bow and fired an arrow into the air, and said, Grant, O God, that I may punish the Athenians. Also, to ensure the Athenians would never leave his mind, he had one of his servants, every time he sat down to dinner, repeat to him in his ear three times, Master, remember the Athenians. And remember the Athenians he did. Darius's focus now shifted west, where the Persians had not yet conquered. The planning for a campaign into Greek lands now began. Next episode, we will look at the build-up of the forces that would take place to mount their campaign west, their advance through Greek territory, paying a visit to those who had assisted the Ionian Revolt, and then culminating in the arrival on the Greek mainland and lead up to what would be the Battle of Marathon. Thank you for your continued support. To receive updates and to be notified of new episodes, you can subscribe at castingthroughancientgreece.com. Also, you can follow the series on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. I hope you can join me next time for episode 16, The First Persian Invasion.